All right, Lindy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, you've come at kind of a cool time. Well, first, it took a little while for us to get here. I'm finally glad we finally made it, you know, yes. schedules and all that. But then it's about one year anniversary for the Small Lake City podcast. It's oh, about nice. one year ago that I released the first episode. And so we're one year into it. So I'm, I'm happy to have you on for the quote unquote one year anniversary. I'm privileged to be here and thank you. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. So just by way of introduction, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do here. And I mean, you're a little bit north of Salt Lake, but you're Davis County. Yes. So tell us what you do up there and what what your role in the community up there is. Sure, yeah, my name's Lindy Barnard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I'm also a mom and yeah, we moved up to Davis County 2017. So moved to Utah about 10 years ago. I'm originally from um, California, went to graduate school for social work in the Bay Area. Okay. Um, But yeah, one of the cool things is, is since I've been in Utah, we lived in Utah County. Okay. I've worked in Salt Lake okay. used to work right here near Holiday and Murray, and now I'm up in Davis County. So, kind of had the cool experience of interacting with a lot of different communities and mm-hmm. resources, and understanding different parts of the population throughout the Wasatch Front. So, um, but up in Davis County, I um, after my my twins are turning six next week. Okay, so nice. and I have one older son and so I was kind of doing the part-time thing for a while because needed to be home with them but over the last year I started working more and I finally left where I was a clinical director and training manager for a group practice and left there to start my own practice so I own a private practice called Mind and Strength um, based out of Davis County in Bountiful and then we have a small office in Farmington and I've ever since coming to Utah about 10 years ago, even down in Utah County, I've been very passionate about integrating mental health um, with physical health mm. and well-being. Yeah. Um, because I've just seen throughout my career that when you're not sleeping well, if you're not getting types of joyful movement, when you don't have connections in the community, when you don't have good access to food, nutrition, all those things really have a huge impact on mental health. And so my practice really focuses on integrating exercise, nutrition, and mental health with the emphasis on working with women with body image and Mm. disordered eating. Yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible work you're doing and very needed in the community, obviously. Why do you think, or do you think that there is this movement towards integration more so now? Yes. Okay. Which is, uh, I agree with, I think it's super important. Why do you think it's taken us so long to finally get to this point where we are talking more about all this integrated work? That's a good question. I think one of the things I saw, like when I worked at the hospital and that's one of the other cool things, like in my career, I've worked you know, we were in the Bay Area and I worked in Oakland. We were in Nashville and I worked there and now I've been in um, Utah for the last 10 years. So I feel like I've really had a chance to really see different systems, different approaches. Where I really got introduced to this idea of integration and wraparound services was uh, through Alameda County, okay. which is uh, the county where Oakland is. And okay. one of my professors in graduate school was the um, director for substance abuse of Alameda County. And they were really starting to do what they call wraparound services mm. and recognizing that people, part of the reason they kept relapsing was because they didn't have access to food, 
housing, other needed services, you know, and in mental health and in the psychological field, we talk a lot about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And if you aren't meeting those basic needs, it is really hard to improve how you think about things, how you feel about things, your perspective on things. So I think that's part of the reason why we're finally going that direction. But I think part of the reason it's taken so long is because Western medicine really focuses on individualization and doesn't really look at it very well from a systemic right. approach yeah. and that the system really impacts the individual. We tend to look at it from individual and up yeah. when we really need to look at it from the top down to the individual. And I think finally people are starting to see that integration from other philosophies, Eastern philosophy, yoga, all those type of things that we see starting to get brought more into mental health. Um, but yeah, the hospitals 10 years ago were very, very just what's in the hospital. Yeah. Um, I was part, when I first moved to Utah, I was part of basically like the case study of doing a little bit more integrated case management okay. within yeah. the hospitals. Like I was based in the ER, uh -huh. but I was reaching out to clients in the community that we kept seeing and to come into uh -huh. the ER. And I was doing full biopsychosocial assessments on the meeting, looking at what's going on biologically, what's going on socially, what's going on physiologically, you know, psychologically, right. that might be contributing to why they keep coming to the hospital. So I think it's taken a while for the systems to break down the barriers Barriers, mm. um, to believe that when we're treating an individual, we need to look from the top to the bottom instead of the bottom to the top. Yeah, which I, I think is super crucial. Do you, do you feel like part of the bumps in the road to getting in there is this insurance factor that insurance doesn't really support that model very well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I laugh. This is um, insurance is... It, it, it's so hard because it's so necessary for access of care. Yeah. And there's people that really need that mental health support, especially youth and children mm -hmm. and families that that really can't afford the care that they really need and the preventative care yeah. that would yeah. really help in the long term right. um, without the insurance. My practice, we do accept insurances. I'll be honest, there are a couple of insurance um, insurances that I'm dropping for several reasons. One being because my practice really focuses on integrated care. Right. And my um, my strategic partner is a master's level clinical nutritionist, mm. which in the state of Utah doesn't recognize. And so she can't accept insurance. Yeah. But her specialty is really looking at functionally how nutrition, how hormones, gut health, all those things affect you, which is so imperative yeah. to to mental health, you know? Um, but if I can't, if my clients can't see her with insurance, it creates a barrier to really creating that integrated care that we're trying to establish. Yeah. Or things such as yoga, which I have a therapist that's yoga certified. Melanie, my clinical nutritionist, also yoga certified. We're looking into it um, for next year. We have a f exercise physiologist that is um, we're working with bringing her on board to do some stuff with us. And yeah, all those type of services are not covered by insurance. Yeah. And so we're trying to figure out how can we still provide access to care, yeah. but stay true to what we believe that 
the picture of health and wellness and mental well-being is broader than just sitting in a therapy room one-on-one. And actually there's a lot of studies to support the therapeutic nature of nature and Mm. walking and, you know, yoga and traditional insurance, yes, won't cover those type of experiential treatments. So yeah, it's like this dissonance I I have as a business owner of like the way I really wanna provide care doesn't line up with insurance, but there's people I know need services that can't access it without insurance. Right. Well, I love to hear as as a business owner, you're thinking about creative ways to get around that because I think that's gonna be the thing that changes insurance is like, individual business owners and places that are trying to utilize insurance saying like, hey, this isn't work for us. We're going to pivot to do it this way. And then the insurance is going to eventually be forced to to hopefully support all of that. But I mean, I wouldn't be against, you know, even at a, a alternate alternate model that we don't even know about we haven't even come up with yet that doesn't have to be supported by big insurance because i think big insurance is never going to be seriously interested in supporting individuals and communities in the way that you described Mm -hmm. i think they're always going to be unfortunately interested in how they can make the most money and how they can (laughs) keep people involved in the system you Mm -hmm. know that buzzword you said of preventative care like Insurance doesn't like prevention. They don't like to prevent problems from happening in the future. They they want to just treat what's there. So I don't yeah. know. But you can see it in the community. At least I see it. And I'm sure in the programs that you work with, especially like mentioned the after school programs and the nonprofit, I see it more and more that we do have more people wanting to come in for preventative care. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that in the community, like the mental health is being talked about more, you know, and that we're trying to take some of the stigma out of it. Right. And so, yeah, we do have people coming in wanting to do more preventative care. Right. And some people have the resources to pay for that out of pocket. Other people don't. Um, But there are great resources. Like one of the things I, I had, I had worked for a Salt Lake-based EAP, Employee Assistance Program, where companies pay for therapy, Mm. or like I used to go out and do um, like seminars at the different companies, you know, on mental health topics. So, and that's becoming, that has just exponentially grown as an option for people through COVID. Like in my private practice, I'm a contractor for a national like EAP, you know? So So what's great is that we're starting to see, but we're seeing it happen more in workplace settings. So people, if they haven't, they should check with their employer and see if their employer offers EAP because a lot of people do have access to free therapy services through their employer, which is a great option for people. Yeah, yeah. There is, I've, I've definitely seen that shift and uh, in the agency I work for, we do have a similar program where we can go get that service. So that is great to see. It would almost be like really refreshing to see like an insurance company that their model was more prevention based. Like yeah. they just came out and said that we're more preventative based. We wanna really put a lot of money and time effort into the prevention side of things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that will ever happen, but yeah. I, would, I would love to see that happen. Yeah. yeah. I feel like one area of social work that they talked a lot, cause I went to graduate school in the Bay Area and uh, my program was pretty cool. It was a newer program mm. in the Bay Area, but um, it was in Hayward, just right, ne- right next to Oakland. But there was a big focus on um, 
not only the mental health, that was the track I went, but also in social work, we talk a lot about um, the person in the environment. We really mm. focus on, okay, how do we help people that are vulnerable, the marginalized populations? And so social justice, which was a huge um, cultural thing that was present in the Bay Area, and I believe so is still today. You know, yeah. I haven't lived there in 10 years, but I love that. And they're in mental health. We need to band together, and I will be the first to tell you I'm not the best at this in terms of what can we do on the political side to help mm. advocate for what we're seeing, you know? Right. And I've heard several coworkers over the years talk about this, like, we need legislators on our side. We yeah. need people writing to their legislators and supporting mental health initiatives because right. until we kind of move that social movement, it's going to be really hard to get insurances to to look and treat things differently. Yeah. But yeah, I'm with you, and I, I kind of get a little angry that we have to go that route. That our system is set up that we have to like convince these legislators, these politicians, to do that. But I guess that's where we're at. I'm wondering you know, as a mental health practitioner, if you see increase of, of symptoms around this, this time of year, we're election oh. time. So, you know, people are getting like a little bit more divided in the community because they're voting for this person or that person and they don't want to talk to their neighbors because of that or they do want to talk to their neighbors because of that. Do you, do you see that more during election political season? It depends. I think it also depends on the community you're mm. in and the population you serve. Right. Um, I, around election, I don't see it so much in my practice in particular. I did have a client kind of was making a comment. They're like, well, I don't know what your pol political affiliation is. Yeah, I was like, yeah. doesn't matter. Tell yeah, me yeah. what you're thinking and how right. you're feeling and how it impacts you. Um, definitely saw it in past presidential elections. Uh. Um, but you mentioned this time of year, symptoms increase, and my immediate reaction is, oh, yes. Yeah. But not necessarily, yes, I'm sure there are people, like I said, the population I serve, I, I work with a lot of women, like I said, with disordered eating and body image, so a lot of our treatment is focused on that. Right. My practice in general, our emphasis is anxiety, depression, and trauma. So in general, this time of year, especially like in Utah, when we just had that sudden drop in temperature last week. Right. I have had the same conversation about maybe 10 times this week where my client's like, why am I feeling more depressed this week? Uh, why am I more anxious this week? Right. It's colder, it's darker. We haven't had the time change yet. I was taking my kids to school. I'm like, it's 7.50 in the morning and the sun's not all the yeah. way out yeah. yet. Um, so this time of year and also we're going into the holiday season and i feel like one thing i've noticed especially the last couple of years um it, say a couple of years but it feels a lot bigger this year now that we're kind of really coming out of like restrictions with covid right halloween has become big and that's one thing I learned when I moved to Utah, where I grew up, Halloween was not a big deal. Mm. And maybe that's a cultural thing that has shifted over the years for the country in general as well. But I was like, what is with all the haunted houses? That was not <laughs> something yeah, I was familiar true. with. More and more lately. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. But so now it feels like Halloween has been lumped into the holiday season. Right. And, and that's great. A lot of people love that and enjoy that and celebrate the fall. I love the fall. But what I do see with that is an increase in depression and anxiety mm. and trauma triggers. Interesting. Um, seasonal affective disorder is something that people talk a lot about. Um, and yes, that has a huge impact for a lot of people. 
But also, as we get into the holiday season, when I ask, I did a training this week, I do a monthly call with the group and on mental health topics and ask them, okay, what, what emotions and things come up for you around the holidays? Stress, mm-hmm. financial strain, more social engagements, having to see extended family, food, having to eat in front of somebody, fear of what people are going to say because I've gained weight during COVID. Right. All these different things people are already thinking about. And I've already had clients talk to me about the stress they're feeling about, oh, crap, what am I going to have to deal with over Thanksgiving? Yeah. So that's I definitely see an increase in mental health concerns over the winter into the holiday season. Yeah, you, you can almost kind of feel that anxiety ramping up if you think about the last three months of the year and like everything that goes into that. Like you just kind of start, you know, feeling it in the body to start yeah. with. And then I think that just compounds over the three months. It, it, it is an interesting thing. You, it feels like that is uh, cultural, like a part mm-hmm. of our Western culture very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if you know much research on seasonal affective disorder. Do you, does that feel cultural as what? Well, other parts of the world experience that, or is that an American sort of thing? I haven't done a lot of research to see like the studies, but I'll tell you something from an interest from this conversation I had earlier this week with a group that I do monthly calls with. One, she is actually located in Oslo. Okay. And we were talking about seasonal affective disorder, and you might have seen these studies. There are studies about like the fact, right? We know sunlight has an impact on depression. Right. Right. We know that's why places like Alaska yeah. during the winter, yeah. you know, have an impact. That's why they have lamps and different things to kind of help with seasonal affective disorder. But there's also been some research about the impact that elevation oh, yeah, yeah. has I've heard about that. You know, yeah. on depression and suicide ideation. And part of that has to do with lack of oxygen mm. and just things not flowing as easily in our body. Right. And when we were talking about this, I kind of brought that up. This... Um, this friend of mine that's in Oslo, she's like, that's interesting because same studies have been done here. And I guess in the north, they have the same thing in Norway uh, where there's it gets really dark right. and rates of depression in that part of Norway are higher. Go up, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know much about internationally. I do believe there is an impact um, whether I feel like, like when I moved to Utah in 2012, they said it was one of the coldest winters. I'm like, well, great. This California girl <laughs> did not like that. Right. And it was the first time in my life I really felt like I understood what that seasonal yeah. depression felt like because I hadn't experienced that before. Um, and so that gave me some empathy and understanding for my clients in a way that, you know, you try, but right. until you go through it, sometimes like you do your best and I, and I know how to help my clients, but when you really experience it, it can just help you and and how you deal with it but also the busyness and the always having to go that is so predominant in our culture in the united states and in the western culture yes definitely has an impact yeah yeah i think that's maybe where my head was headed is that it's definitely compounded during october november december and that unfortunately coincides with these colder months or when it starts to get cold and dark that we have all that busyness around Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these holidays and mm-hmm. all these expectations of how to act and how to be during that time period. Yeah. So it's 
Yeah, a lot going on that that goes into that, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's something like, um, you know, over the last, and I'm going to pull up something here that I share and I use with my clients over the holiday season. Um, because we really do have to build some resiliency. And that's the other piece, like my perspective as a, as a therapist. And also, like you said, like as a community, like we see uh, even this week, um, I'm sure you've heard about that big fire that happened in Sugar House, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I, as of yesterday, they were still trying to put it out, I believe. Yeah, I, I, I followed it a little bit. Business is shutting down because of smoke and everything, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But one thing I thought was cool was the news was talking about it. They're like, oh, look at the community banding together. Mm. You know, this everyone's being kind. Everyone's asking, are you okay? Are the kids okay? Is the dog okay? I was hearing this on right. the radio yesterday. And, and I was like, look, there's an example of resiliency. And that's resiliency is our ability, whether it be individually or as a community, to adapt in the face of adversity. And so I really actually do talk about, I love talking about resiliency with all my clients because I think it's the number one thing that you can learn that's gonna help you overcome depression, anxiety, trauma, family conflict, grief, because while we have to honor the experiences we go through, knowing that we can adapt in the face of adversity gives you that hope to keep moving forward. Yeah. And a lot of my clients during the holidays get so wrapped up in all the busyness and the anxiety and the expectations, they lose sight of that hope. They lose sight of that ability to adapt. So I always, like last year, I was still... Um, a training director and I was supervising provisionally licensed therapists and mm. interns that were in their uh, master's program. And so I talked to them, I was like, hey, holidays are coming up. You gotta know what to see in your clients, how to ask your clients about it. You gotta anticipate for them what are some of the challenges they're gonna be facing during this season. Because if we can help them anticipate it and ask themselves questions, we can help them kind of examine what their expectations are for the holidays, you know? So like some of the questions I have my clients look at is, what are my emotions and feelings going into the holidays? What am I looking forward to? What expectations do I have? Mm -hmm. And going back to, like you said, there's our culture and our community tends to have a lot of expectations. Yeah. There could be expectations like um, school, right? You work with a lot of youth. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I always know from a private practice standpoint, right? From a business standpoint, my appointments are gonna go down mm -hmm. in November and December because kids are doing choir concerts or this end of yeah, yeah. school activity or this dance or, or whatever it may be. Right. Um, but I have clients who I don't wanna sing in the school choir concert yeah. or I don't wanna go to this dance, but everybody expects me to and right. there's anxieties about that. So I spend a lot of time kind of helping people look at what are, your family expectations, what are maybe school expectations, work expectations, religious expectations, neighborhood expectations versus you as an individual right. or you, you know, and your loved ones. That's so important to differentiate. Are you doing things because everybody else is putting those expectations on you or you're doing them because that's what you want? Yeah. out of this season of life. Yeah, that's always great questions to ask yourself. And I think my time in working in mental health, there's always this big discussion around expectations versus reality. Like yeah. what, what are your ex expectations? What's the reality of the situation? 
how do those things bump up against each other, come together, integrate? Yeah. Um, you know, if you can wrap your head around your own personal expectations and, you know, expectations that are being put on you, I think being prepared for it yep. helps so much in the long run, right? It does. It does. And it also helps you try to simplify. And I know that's something I've had to do for myself and for my family. Um so I, I grew up on a farm out in California, um, and we had a Christmas tree farm, and it was one of those oh, wow. like we yeah. actually raised the you know the Christmas tree, so right. you actually got to come choose and cut your Christmas oh, tree. Cool. Yeah. So Christmas at my house it was huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we also never got to travel during the holidays because we were running a Christmas tree farm yeah, up until yeah. Christmas, and um, we grew up in an area where we didn't have any family. It was just me and my family, you know. So we had to create our own community of family. So my mom always did these huge Thanksgivings. She would invite everybody else that she we knew, like close friends or neighbors and and people that we were involved with the community that she also knew didn't have family in the area. Right. And we would have like these huge Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve dinners. And I have so many fond memories of that. And then when moving to Utah, my husband's originally from Utah. We have a lot of family here, his family, not mine. Um, and also moving into a community where there was lots of people, where most people in our community had family was like a huge transition yeah. for me. And I had to adjust my expectations of myself and what the holidays would look like. And it was like a grief process for me to kind of Interesting. go through like, wait, holidays aren't what they were for me growing up and they don't look the same. And then we had twins, we had twins, uh, the beginning of November, so like the first year they were born, if if I hadn't gone into labor, I was going to be induced the week of Thanksgiving. So it was like, well, nope, don't plan anything for the holidays this year. <laughs> yeah. And then the following years it was, well, they're not sleeping and mm -hmm. one will scream in the car if we go anywhere longer right. for an hour. Yeah. So every year I've had to kind of like adjust expectations. And I think sometimes we get too hard on ourselves when we have to do that. And I see that a lot with my clients. And we see this in systems, kind of going back to systems, right? Like family systems theory talks about what is the family cohesion versus what is the family adaptability. Yeah. And sometimes when, when families are very rigid or communities are very rigid, which I think we learned a lot about communities' ability to adapt <laughs> in the face of adversity like yes, COVID. Yes, we did, yeah, yeah. You have to learn what that flexibility is. Right. And that is really an emotional toll for a lot of people to have to face that ability to adapt, be flexible, and build that resiliency around, okay, expectations shift, and that's okay. Right. So adaptability, flexibility, expectations, those are probably three big things you talk about when building resiliency and understanding yes. it, what are the other factors that go into that for you? So there's actually four pillars or components of okay. resiliency, and those three that you just mentioned actually fall in line with those. So the four that I really, um, that I built my practice and my, my treatment philosophy on are the four components of resiliency are connection, and I look at that two ways. 
how are you connecting with yourself? Mm. How do you feel at peace with yourself? And this is so important, especially for the work I do around body image, right. because most people don't trust themselves in their body, which mm. then again brings up a ton during the holidays. Sure. Yeah, Because am I gonna be allowed to eat that food? Are they gonna judge me if I'm eating right. that food in front of them? Right. Whatever it may be. But connection with yourself is important and feeling peace and calm in yourself. And again, we talked a little bit about that integration piece and kind of Western medicine philosophy where it's like really focused on the symptoms and the individual and finding the diagnosis um, and also trusting those outside influences. Trust what your doctor tells you, trust mm. what this person, authority tells you. Right. We really have a respect for authority. We don't always have respect for that individual. Right. And so I really work on trying to help people reconnect with themselves and trusting their own physical symptoms, their own physiological symptoms is important, but also understanding what they feel emotionally, right? Building that reconnection with yourself is number one. But also another one is connection with other people. And I see that all over the place post COVID, huge. Especially people that have still transitioned just to working remote. Right. Isolation, loneliness. Yeah, it's huge. Huge. NAMI statistics says it goes up by 63% during the holiday season. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah, (laughs) it's 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 huge. huge. Yeah. So that connection is huge, right? Because if I do have connection, that does help me with adaptability. That does help me have some cohesion and and connection, but it also does help with like the expectations because we tend to be less hard on ourselves and also sometimes hard on other people when we have true, vulnerable, authentic connection. I 100% agree, yeah. So that's the first one. The second one is our wellness, is diet, sleep, exercise, Mm. because those things are important for our well-being. Right. And when we're sleeping better, we tend to think more clearly. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I can attest to that for sure. (laughs) I'm sure other parents can relate to this. You might see this. I don't know how after-school programs work for you, but I was shocked when my son first started elementary school, and he's in sixth grade now. But um, I was like, well, what time do you have lunch? It's not like 10.45 in the morning. I was like, but you get out at 3.30. So I learned really quickly, I better have snacks ready the minute the kids get home. And my, my, my twins are kindergartners this year, and I'm so grateful for that. But by the time they get out, they are hungry yeah yeah so <laughs> we fr- we serve snack the first thing in after school program because of those factors exactly yeah. Yeah. you know so so wellness is a piece of that resiliency because if you are fed sleeping and getting movement i, I actually use the word joyful movement versus mm. exercise because we want people to move in their body in a way that makes them feel good in their body i like that and it's a way that helps you feel empowered um but when you're doing those things then all it doesn't necessarily take away the burdens away but it makes you feel more empowered to face those burdens you're more adaptable to those burdens exactly yeah yeah. so that's number two number three is healthy thinking again Mm -hmm. going back to expectations if i can evaluate that and i can learn to find the gray area that it doesn't have to be so rigid but it also doesn't have to be so chaotic if i can and anticipate okay i can think about what i want for the holidays i can think about how i want to interact i can choose if i want to interact with that aunt that drives me crazy or not like yeah you know if you can think that way 
way and have a healthy thinking pattern like that, again, you become more adaptable, you become more resilient. So healthy thinking is another form. And we do a lot of that type of stuff yeah. in therapy. But what sometimes people miss is that we focus so much because we're so individual based in our Western culture, we focus first on the thoughts. What I really emphasize is, look, that's actually the third step. I'm focusing on your body. Mm. I'm focusing on you feeling connected in yourself. I'm focusing on you having a good foundation. And then those thoughts are gonna more naturally come. Right. That's the third step, not the first. And then the fourth one is finding meaning and purpose. And when you have a reason to live, you have something that drives you, when you can find meaning and purpose out of a difficult situation that you've gone through, then again, you are able to adapt, you're able to stand back up and keep going um, and move forward. And so that's that's the fourth component and last component that we really focus on. I really like all those. And I think anybody could get a lot from just those four basic principles and looking how they integrate into their own lives. The third and fourth seem to come up a lot for me and people I work with is that, you know, that thinking and, you know, in, in therapy, we call them thinking errors and yeah. uh, how to recognize those thinking errors. Why is it, it seems that it's a part of Western culture that the, this black and white thinking, it comes up a lot. Is it, do you find that clients connect that to the Western culture, connect it to religion, connect it to our, or is it just, uh, family sort of things that come up for them with this black and white thing, all of all that. All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. So for example, I will say, um, yeah, all of the above. But if you think about our constructs of the way our society in in the United States, you know, I've never worked out the outside the United States. Right. So all I know is things I've heard from people I've worked with individually or have read, you know, right. so my expertise definitely is more. <laughs> sure, yeah. But culturally, school. Mm. My son was just trying to tell me how school was pointless yesterday. <laughs> I watched a video and they said I should be learning things that I want to learn. I'm like, well, yeah, if you want to learn about science and math, you got to learn how to do it first. Right. But, you know, the way we do school, um, religion, family, right? Like, there's a lot of comparison of like, in the United States where the nuclear family is kind of the core. Other really, other countries, there's more of people describe it as a tribe. So yeah, the, the social contracts, obviously constructs really have an impact on how we think, feel and behave individually. Um, so there's that, there's that broader of culture United States then there's the even more so culture of what state you live in. Mm. I, I grew up in California. It's a very different yeah, culture than here in Utah. Yeah. And then within, if I, I, that's something like I said, I've worked and lived in three different parts of Utah and I am learning there uh, there are distinct differences just even within the counties. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't have much experience working with um, rural communities mm. in Utah, but I know there's some major differences yeah. between rural and city. Yeah, I grew up in a more rural, lower socioeconomic area of California, huge drug and alcohol problems in that area, migrant farmer workers. They take three weeks off for um, Christmas break mm. because so many 
kids leave to go back to Mexico to visit family, oh, wow. that they were gone for long periods of time that was actually affecting enrollment. At least this is the story I heard from my sister. Sure. So yeah. she still lives there. I could be wrong. But my understanding was they increased it from two weeks to three weeks because not enough kids were coming back to school at one time. Oh, wow. So they changed yeah. the school calendar to accommodate right. the population needs. So yes, yeah, I mean, down from the United States down to the individual house, Another big influence, obviously, is going to be media. Mm. And in my specialty of working with body image and disordered eating, this is a huge part. But also the stories and the messages that are given from women to men yeah. is yeah. a huge impact as well. Right. Because um, you have social, you have the social media um, impact and the the cultural impact of what movies, TV, and all those things say about what a woman should be. Yeah. Then you have a religious component of here's a woman's role, like, or what some people would look at. Okay, what are the gender roles? Yeah. And then you also have family expectations. And then you have athletic expectations. And then you have social expectations, like within a school system. This is something as I was um, working with interns last year, and we were I was training them to ask, especially the girls coming in, the youth coming in, how do you feel about your body? Mm. And and one of the interns in particular, she's like, Lindy, they don't talk about this at all in my program. They don't they don't give as mental health professionals. We do not get enough training in graduate school. Most of us have to seek it out after graduate school. That's true. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> about especially about body image. Yeah. But it is having a huge impact on the youth. And it does impact men. We have more studies about women than we do men. It does impact men. Yeah. My specialty is in women, mm. <laughs> but it does impact men. But it's having a huge impact. And if people have a negative relationship with their body, all those other things are impacted negatively as well. Yeah. It, it is interesting to hear you just go through and explain how that's all tied together. And I think that's sometimes a hard thing for people to pull apart is how they're so going back to this idea of integration, so how they're all so yep. closely together. And if you don't recognize that, then you kind of get stuck in, in more of this black and white thinking that it's just like, oh, if I don't do this or I do this, it, it means that. Yes. And I, I think in, in terms of prevention standpoint for all these factors you talked about is if we as a community do a better job of being more nuanced in the way we talk about things and being more nuanced and, and being able to talk about gray area and what what all these spaces in between places look like. You know, yeah. there's a space in between everything. We, we need to quit kind of talking about absolutes and quit thinking about left versus right, mm -hmm. wrong versus right, you know, sin versus not a sin or, yeah. you know, a six pack versus not a six pack, you know, what, yeah. it's so black and white in everything we do. And we see it so much in the medical community. Um, have you ever heard the term weight stigma? I have, but I'm not familiar with it. It's basically discrimination in the medical community based off of your weight. Oh, wow, okay. And there's still a lot in the community in how we deliver medical services that is biased based off of weight mm. and off of the BMI, which is, right. and they are checking kids' BMI height versus weight ratio from when they're babies. And it's actually <laughs> yeah. not, it's interesting because historically the BMI was studied 
as to study an entire population of an entire country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not an individual's right. person. Yeah. So what we see happen with weight stigma is that people and this again goes back to that nuance, like someone with diabetes, what do they end up doing? Blaming themselves. Mm. Oh, I hate too much sugar. Oh, my blood sugar's out of control. It's my fault. Right. They're missing and this is where my clinical nutritionist does great work. I say mine, but she has her own practice, but sure. we work yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um where she can really help people understand the biological nuances. I can really help them understand the psychological nuances. Like, is it really all your fault? Okay, are there things that you can do to improve your health? And we like to call those health promoting behaviors. Right. But yeah, let's look at the nuances. But one of the things that just makes my heart so sad in the community is that I know so many individuals that are not seeking medical care because they have been told, oh, this is what's wrong. Go lose weight and exercise. Yeah. And that's all they're told. Yeah. Which, yeah. You, it's, it's never that simple, right? Oh. And I think as uh, as a community, if we do better about like talking like these topics like we are right now, then I think it will become more normalized. And hopefully we will sort of experience a shift where we don't use these stupid measures like BMI to... Yeah. to to say like Lindy, that's who you are because of your BMI. Yeah, it's it's definitely more complex and and individual than that. And I see healthcare or health in general sort of moving to this individual. Like, well, let's take a look at what this is for you, your family history. Let's do a little bit more lab and blood work to see what else is going on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, let's talk about the mental health part of this as yeah. well and how that's all integrated. I see that shift sort of happening. I hope it happens at a more rapid pace because mm-hmm. I think that's really when you experience true health is where you individually can sit down with a team of people like in your clinic and say like, this is are the nutritional factors, these are the mental health factors, uh, these are the exercise factors, the body mm-hmm. image factors, yeah. all those things would be incredible if everybody had access to that. Yeah, and, and hopefully, you know, we're in the growth stage of my practice and hopefully, and I know there's other practices similar to mine that also wanna go more integrated. Um, but one thought I had as you were reviewing that, I was like, yeah, and you know one of the holdups I have when clients and I start talking about the nuances and how we have to look at it more from a person and environment perspective is one of the things that a lot of times bring us relief from feeling feeling withdrawn, feeling sad, feeling like, oh my gosh, this is my fault. Like, what do I do to change that? Is when we can cling onto one thing that is in our control and can Mm. change. So for example, like someone with anxiety, it's like, okay, well, if I can control where I'm at, what I'm doing, then I won't feel anxious. Like kids trying to avoid school. That's a very, very common reaction or having stomach aches because of anxiety. We both know that's really common. So if I can control and not go to school, then I won't feel this anxiety. Or for a lot of the clients I work with, well, if I lose weight, that's something I can control, then I can actually find clothes that fit my size. Mm. Then I don't need to ask for a seatbelt extender or I don't have to worry if I'm not going to fit on the roller coaster at Lagoon. Like, right. So one of the challenges of really honoring and accepting where we're at and looking at those nuances is that need and want to control. And if I can blame something that is in my control, then it's in my power to change. And that is, we spend, again, some time in therapy really trying to deconstruct that because there's some truth to it. Yeah. But 
it's not all true. Yeah, it's it's a real difficult balance to find that within oneself is to to know how much you should control or how much you can control versus letting go versus yes. asking for help, right? There's, there's so many factors that go into that. And I think we've all found ourselves at like trying to over control situ- situations and uh, maybe not being able to recognize the the not so healthy parts of that. But I think finding a team like yours or finding individuals in the community that can can help you out is is super important. So yeah. I know we're kind of getting towards the end here, but to, to finish up, remind us of the, the name of uh, your, your clinic mm-hmm. and the, the services so that people, if they want to seek that out, they can. Yeah, so my practice is Mind and Strength. Our website is mymindmystrength.com. My emphasis is trying to help you find your what is my mind and what's my strength? That's it's awesome, yeah. That integration of mind and physical strength. Um, but we're based in Bountiful. We also provide online counseling. We do individual counseling. Um, Melanie provides clinici- clinical nutrition services. And like I said, we're in the process of bringing on someone that can also do individualized exercise um, where you can come in, do an assessment. She also does it virtually. Mm. So we have options for all of these, virtually or in person in our Bountiful office. Um, and then hopefully in this next year, we're hoping to bring on and do some more group work. Awesome. Um, and we treat depression, anxiety, trauma, most general mental health conditions, and our specialty is working with body image and disordered eating. That's awesome. I'm so happy to hear about these uh, places in the community that I didn't even know about. So <laughs> hearing more about it and having an hour-long conversation to talk about everything that goes into that, I really appreciate your time. Is there yeah. any other uh, messages or anything else that you want to put out in the community before we wrap up? Yeah, like you said, and we've talked about, I, I do 100% believe in preventative care that is fully integrated and that to really seeing long lasting changes in your mental health, you have to understand the full picture. And I do know from experience, it's so much easier to do that in one place of with professionals that like can coordinate your care and have respect for you and where you're at. So if you've been struggling to find the right the right care, reach out and I'll help you. I have a lot of good connections with the community or we could see if my clinic's a good fit, but I think people really need to believe that they are worthy enough to have that integrated full person approach to their treatment. Uh, yeah. I- couldn't have said it better myself there's people out there in the community that want to help so reach out ask for help they're there thanks lindy i'm gonna i'm gonna link up everything uh, you know the website and everything else in the little notes for this uh this episode so if anybody wants to go click on those links please do and reach out all right thank you thanks